The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trudzakian. Welcome back. Well, it is early July. We're past the Canada Day long weekend, July 1st. Heat wave is behind us. Thank goodness. It seems that uh, restrictions are behind us. We're in studio today. Special guest. We'll talk about that in a minute. So how did you fare through Canada Day long weekend? You went camping. Yeah, we had that rental RV. So we had our rental RV with the electric car. You know, since uh, we can't actually haul the uh, that's uh, not RV net with zero. Car. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now there was some. There was definitely some greenhouse gas emissions, but yeah. it worked out pretty well. I have to say, like the uh, renting the RV, I think is the way to go. It was a good experience for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, when it's really hot, you want to be in an RV because they usually have like really good air conditioners for the size of the mm. unit. So anyway, we weren't we weren't uh, doing too bad with the heat in it either. Well, it's probably been at least 15 years since I rented an RV. We went down to Milk River in the middle of a heat wave back when, and uh, it didn't have air conditioning. And believe me, you didn't <laughs> want to be in an RV. <laughs> oh, no, down no. In, uh, in that, but it's beautiful countryside. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about carbon capture utilization Again. and sequestration. I know we've Again. had lots of uh, podcasts recently around this topic, but we wanted to talk specifically about Alberta policy today. And mm-hmm. uh, we're really happy to have Tristan Goodman from EPAC join us today to tell us a bit about what's going on with Alberta policy. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome, Tristan. Actually, maybe for our audience, what is EPAC? What does it stand for? And uh, what do you do? Sure. Well, thanks, Peter. So, uh, EPAC is the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. We represent small, medium, and even some large companies that are really independent. So, it's all Canadian-based producers, oil and gas, and uh, that's who we represent. There's about roughly around 100 members. 100 members representing how much production? Probably about 40%, 35% of all oil produced in Canada and about 60% of all natural gas. So, quite a lot of production. So, the big producers or the oil sands producers, and they're largely part of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP. EPAC has traditionally been the smaller independent producers. Is that? That's correct. Yeah, it's morphed a little bit. You know, we're, we work very closely with other associations, including CAP yeah. and also SEPA, so yeah. the pipeline group. Yeah, so you've gone upscale over the years, I know, and also there's been consolidation in the business, so little companies coming together to make bigger companies. So your membership, the character has changed and that's gone to larger. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's really the consolidation that's driven a lot of this. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And so now the big buzz is carbon capture. We know from all sorts of agency reports that getting to net zero by 2050 is not possible without capturing carbon emissions and sequestering them in rocks. We have lots of porous rocks here in Alberta, so it's a natural. Today, as I said before, we want to focus on Alberta policy and specifically an announcement that Alberta put out on May 12th of 2021 about how they want to develop CCUS hubs in the province. And this was in response to a very large number of inquiries related 
to sequestration opportunities. So the province is getting lots of people interested in that, recognizing the opportunity, like you said, Peter, because of the move to lower carbon. Some of the policies we've talked about on the podcast, like the clean fuel standard and the higher carbon pricing, the potential for this credit, this tax credit that's still being designed, but that came out with the federal budget. So we want to talk specifically about what was in that letter and the reaction today with Tristan. But before we get to that, maybe, Tristan, you can tell us a bit about your history, your work history. You were at the Alberta Energy Regulator for many years, and you were involved in the development of our first CCUS policy back when we first put the Quest project in, if I'm right. Yeah, it's uh, it's going back uh, 15 years or so now, probably longer, but... Uh, Well, at the regulator, we spent a lot of time doing some pretty hard and technical work, effectively looking at what was actually possible from a reservoir containment standpoint, whether that's in saline aquifers or depleted oil and gas reservoirs, and then working with the province effectively to come up and construct regulations and policies. So that was the initial set that moved forward and uh, had the opportunity there to work with a very famous scientist, actually, Dr. Stefan Bashu, who actually is a Nobel laureate from Alberta at the Alberta Research Council time. So that was where some of that background is. And then of course, also having worked with multinationals, we've seen sort of how that develops and uh, sort of looking at what opportunities, how the money flows into the system to actually develop these out. And those policies that went into place, were they just for the Quest project or were they more applicable across the whole province? So at that time they were more applicable. So there were certainly Because of Quest coming up, there was knowledge, obviously, that Quest was going to be there. Previously, in the Stalmac era, there was actually $2 billion issued. I think about probably $700 million of that went to the Quest project in Mm -hmm. the end. Something roughly like that. Maybe it's a little more, a little less. Ottawa, I think, put in another $100 million, if I remember. And then you're talking about a $1.3 billion project. So that was Quest. The policies are there. Quite successful moving forward. And some also some learnings on what to do in the future in Alberta. And so the government now has looked at that and said, okay, we we sort of see some other opportunities moving forward. Those opportunities have really gathered momentum, I would say, only in the last 18 months, two years. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite a recent thing where, you know, the era of, I'll call it, just extracting hydrocarbons and carbon out of the ground for over a century is now shifting to the realization that there's also opportunity in sequestering carbon and putting it back into the pore space, as they call it in the geology. So can you talk a little bit about how the policies are being designed in terms of reversing the extraction? Now it's the sequestration or putting basically the carbon back in the ground. Yeah, so, I mean, you're really looking at, and that's a great way to put it, Peter. It is sort of, We've been doing the outtake for sort of 100 plus years, but now there are really, and they are truly opportunities to look at as you move back in. And there's sort of two general forms there that is generally looked at in the oil and gas business. There's certainly more, but the two that are the hot topic today are really around enhanced oil recovery, which obviously dramatically reduces your GHG emission from that unit of oil coming out but also through pure sequestration. Some people refer to this as storage. Basically, putting carbon back in for an, basically forever. Mm-hmm. You could say for an extended period, but it really is a permanent solution. Right. So, for example, 
it doesn't even have to be oil and gas industry related. It could be emissions from a cement plant, fertilizer plant, direct air capture, say that was generated by aviation emissions. The carbon gets captured, piped, and then sequestered back into the ground, sealed up forever. That's correct, yeah. You're talking something annually right now around the world of about 40 million tons, according to the International Energy Agency. And if you break that down, the majority of that right now is is occurring at natural gas facilities. Mm -hmm. But also fertilizer, steel making, those are all examples as well. All right, well, let's switch to the future. Can you tell us a little bit about the letter that I referred to that came out in May, which we will put a link to, in terms of what the Alberta government's thinking about regarding future CCS policy? So the letter that's referred to, so this isn't a normal sort of letter. This is really direction. So this is government direction. It works really almost like law. This is called Information Letter 2021-19. It doesn't matter what it is, but it is, should clarify, it is direction coming from the government. And effectively what they said is they've received a very significant number of expressions of interest on folks that want this space in the ground to put carbon. And what they've decided to do is really sort of look at this more and say, okay, look, we have some concerns here. We think it's time to look at this from a specific hub model. And they've, according to their letter, decided to utilize this hub-based approach, which is, it is utilized elsewhere, particularly in Europe, and to a lesser extent in the United States. So before we get to the hub model, can you just back up for a minute? So you say some folks are interested. I, I, I take it that you mean some oil and gas companies are interested now in basically leasing property, getting rights to the rocks underground to store the carbon, right? Because you have to buy the rights. It's effectively like the reverse of getting mineral rights. It's putting stuff back in versus extracting it. So there's a whole series of legalities around that. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's just oil and gas folks. It's certainly the majority are oil and gas, but I think there's others looking at this as an entrepreneurial sort of opportunity. So people who see the opportunity, they say, okay, we've got the means given the carbon taxes and other policies that are in place. We've got the means and we think we can make a go of capturing the carbon and storing it in the geology subsurface. And therefore, there's enough interest now that the government is issuing letters saying, hmm, we better think about how the legalities and the processes and the regulatory policies all have to work. Is that, yeah, is that fair? I mean, it's, it's legitimate. The government is looking at enhancing the existing policy because of, as you expressed, you know, you've got about 18 months, two years, all of a sudden this has started to take off. This pore space has now become actually quite a value yeah. for Alberta. So it makes sense to pay some attention to this. Now, let's define what a CCUS hub is. I don't know if it's defined well in the letter or if um, what's your interpretation of, of what that means. So it is not defined actually clearly in the letter. And there are, that's not necessarily a criticism that you want to have some flexibility here to allow this to be built out. But I think right now, it looks like a hub is a pretty substantive utility-based operation. So it would involve looks like quite a large type of facility and also multiple players sort of putting in carbon into this hub. And I think a good one example would be the 
oil sands hub that has been released and developed. And actually, you've had a podcast on that. That's a really positive development for Alberta. But that's what it's looking like right now. And then maybe there's some opportunities for enhancements around that. Mm. So again, let's get like, just to get specific here, there are industrial facilities that emit carbon dioxide, CO2, yep. right? Many of them are oil sands in this province, but they're not exclusively. There's all sorts of things in the heartland of Alberta. They are going to be able to capture the CO2, put it into a pipe, and all that carbon dioxide then comes to a central hub. And from that hub, there are injection points to put it into the ground. That's correct. Is that? Yep. Well, and then the idea is there's only a limited number of these in the province. So we can't just inject, am I right at this, Tristan? We can't just inject CO2 anywhere in the province. There's going to be certain geographic locations that are designated as hubs, potentially, and maybe that'll only be a small number of them as opposed to having injection sort of all over the province. Is that Yeah, the I think that's what it looks like. But, you know, to Peter's point that, you know, you have the heartland and the oil sands, there's actually tremendous opportunities both for capture, for example, in the Grand Prairie area from natural gas facilities, but also across the province where it may make more sense to develop out a hub or a different style of model to sequester this, to put this mm -hmm. in the ground and get that reduction in greenhouse gas emissions outside of just a hub. So right now the hub looks like there is, it's a limited number and that's where I think the opportunities yeah. come in. And you have to really certify, I guess the regulators have to certify a reservoir and say that, okay, this reservoir is suitable for sequestration. It's not gonna leak for the next 10,000 years, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, generally the regulator is looking at a couple of things. First, number one is always public safety. Fortunately, in this case, this has been demonstrated to be very safe and it's, it's a well-proven technology over decades of use. Then environmental considerations and then finally sort of orderly development resource conservation things, mm -hmm. which is basically, you know, keeping some control over this to make sure it's not a, a complete free-for-all. You don't mm -hmm. want that. But the regulators got a good, strong understanding of this. So the alternative to the hub is a more distributed model where we could inject CO2 all over the province. And, and that may make some sense because sometimes the transportation cost, depending on where you're at, could be much lower if you could inject very close to the source. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what you think is a better model, the hub model or a more distributed type offering? Or, or could we have both? Yeah, it's more. It's actually more about both. So there's certainly a a good opportunity for the hub model, and oil sands is a prime example of that. And there may be others where that's an example. But there's also a good opportunity for Alberta, both from a job creation perspective, but also from an overall GHG reduction perspective, to go to that distributed model to have multiple facilities here that may be a little smaller than a hub. You still want to make sure that people in the local area, other than one business, can enter and exit that hub, meaning they can get access to it. But a distributed model is something you want to consider going forward from a policy perspective. Mm -hmm. And what is the Alberta government proposing in this letter? It looks like what they've, they've done right now, and it's, to, to be fair, this is an initial foray. The distributed model or that sort of approach, it doesn't look like there's an opportunity here. So that's something that we'd hope the Alberta government will work with all producers and all individuals that are interested in capture going forward on. 
given, again, the opportunity, first, the, the prime outcome here you're looking for is GHG reduction. That's the goal. That's the policy. That's what everyone's mm-hmm. focused on. And that gives also the other opportunities that come out of that from a jobs or from an investment standpoint that Alberta should capitalize mm-hmm. on. But for the membership of 100 so companies that you represent, what's optimal for them? I think generally you're going to have a few that will be interested certainly in a hub, but generally they're interested in a distributed model. They're interested in the opportunities Mm -hmm. that creates. Let's remember, government is saying to these oil and gas companies and to all Canadians and to all Albertans, we have to reduce GHG emissions. Well, you have to allow the tools for those people to actually move forward to reduce those emissions. So maybe give us an example of where the distributed model might work a lot better, just a specific example compared to a hub. Yeah, a prime example would actually be in that Grand Prairie area for a natural gas plant. You may have a single operator. Actually, we have single operators that run gas plants. They run them very effectively and efficiently. And that it's going to make a lot more sense to sequester the carbon on site, provided there's a right geological location to do so, than to ship it with all that power involved across Alberta into the Edmonton area, for example, or into another type of hub. It just makes a lot of sense at times to do this on site, provided all the regulatory requirements are met, obviously. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, some of those gas plants already inject H2S uh, into reservoirs. So could they not just kind of incorporate injecting CO2 or is it more complicated than that? In in most cases, it's actually not more complicated than that. There's a 40-year history here of what's termed acid gas injection in Alberta. It's very common from a disposal perspective. It's extremely safe. There have been no issues with this. So we know we're we're onto something positive. And in the end, CO2 actually is, is basically the same thing. It's actually much easier to handle and much easier to manage than other sources. Of course, you do need to make sure it's verifiable. As Peter mentioned, of course, we want to make sure these are important things to make sure because there's credits associated with them with clean fuel standards or other aspects. That's no problem, though. That That is something that you do wish to make sure you have a proper regulatory framework. Yeah, so what you're saying is, you know, you've already got a gas plant up in Grand Prairie that's injecting H2S into a reservoir. Why not start to inject CO2? And um, that would be a low-cost, very fast way to start reducing emissions as opposed to waiting for a massive trunk line to be built from Grand Prairie to Edmonton that could take many years or maybe not happen at all. Just to clarify, nothing, the the trunk lines, that's outstanding. Go ahead. We need all of this to occur, but there'll be places where the trunk line simply isn't available now or actually even in the future. And it will be cost prohibitive. What you're looking for is something that's efficient to get this done, where it makes sense to use a hub and a trunk line and a network like that, that's fantastic. But there should be other opportunities to make sure that we we can do this in an efficient way and also a low GHG way. Mm-hmm. So that's you know one of the issues, distributed versus hub, access to reservoirs and so on. As you said, the this is sort of a first cut at the letter, likely to evolve over time. But there's other issues, and one is sort of definitional in terms of label how you label a CCS project, right? So if you, because a lot of the reservoirs for injection are depleted hydrocarbon reservoirs, if you label them as hydrocarbon reservoirs when you're injecting back in, 
then that you run into some problems in terms of ability to finance these projects because they're associated with oil and gas, which is not compliant necessarily with being clean. Optimally, what you're looking for, you don't have a domestic climate problem. You have a global climate problem. And the goal is that during a period when energy use is changing, you're still using these products. And you will be likely using these products of oil and gas for a long time to come. I think what we should be looking for is the global outcome, which is a reduction in GHG emissions. So an enhanced oil recovery, for example, is critically important to meeting global climate change ambitions. And that involves effectively producing oil with the use of carbon, but that's a much lower GHG barrel of oil. And the positive is at the end of that life of that field in an enhanced oil recovery, that should naturally then switch into a sequestration project. Right. And so you're getting both so, perspectives. Yeah, so just to be clear for our audience, enhanced oil recovery is when the CO2 is injected back into a producing reservoir and it basically helps push the oil out another well because basically, it's just been yeah. sluggish to come out. So that is notionally problematic because you're still producing oil. But as you say, in a transition, you're sequestering and producing, whereas before you were just producing. The oil will be produced regardless because the demand draw is high. So what you're looking for is the next incremental barrel of oil that will be produced. Mm -hmm. or the next, an economist would say the next marginal right. barrel should be at the lowest GHG yeah. emission. Is this merely a definitional thing, as I, as I mentioned earlier, or what needs to be done, I guess? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few things that need to be done. In some cases, the definitions are not able to be changed, and that's perfectly acceptable from an investment standpoint. In other cases, such as the federal tax credit, which is being developed, mm -hmm. that actually does need to be adjusted to meet not only our, our sort of healthy environment drive, but also that healthy economy drive that the federal government has set. And I think there is a missing component there of allowing that development of that tax credit to be applied to enhanced oil recovery, both from a competitiveness standpoint for the Canadian economy and specifically in Alberta, but also from a lowering the GHG emission on a product you're continuing to produce and do continue to need. Yeah. Yeah. So the federal government has said they're not going to allow that tax credit for enhanced oil recovery projects, which I think is actually financing is one issue, Peter, but I think mm -hmm. that's just as big because I think that we don't know what that policy is going to look like, but we're assuming it's going to really help with the economics of those types of projects. So that's one issue. And I really agree with what you say, Tristan, that, you know, we're going to produce oil anyway. And in the end of the day, those projects are going to continue to sequester CO2 when the oil production is no longer economic, you know, so it doesn't mean that they won't in the future become pure storage sites. But I do have a question, you know, there's one example where we put the CO2 in in order to produce oil, that's the goal. But what happens if we put CO2 into a hydrocarbon reservoir, but we don't produce the oil? Would that still be included as enhanced oil recovery? And would that still not be applicable for getting the federal government uh, financing? Because it's really not a real enhanced oil recovery project. It's just putting CO2 into a hydrocarbon reservoir. So it really looks like uh, you have to follow a bit of complicated regulatory 
items from the federal government to the provincial. But right now, it appears that that will be difficult. And I think, again, we should be accessing all space that's safe, environmentally sensible, and also has that protection for orderly development. That will include depleted reservoirs. And right now, it looks like that's going to be a challenge for those producers trying to get to that economic threshold, which will require the tax credit. That's both a federal and a provincial issue that needs to be adjusted. So it is it is problematic. You're not simply going to sequester carbon into what they call saline reservoirs. There are opportunities to permanently sequester carbon and reduce GHG emissions globally in reservoirs that are coming from a depleted oil and gas reservoir. The reason that we know that is that's actually why the reservoir was sort of sitting there anyway. It used to hold oil and gas. We know it's a good reservoir. Right. So it seems like by what you're saying is right now in the province, the only opportunity that clearly looks available is putting the CO2 into aquifers. And we're ignoring a huge opportunity with putting CO2 into existing hydrocarbon reservoirs, even if it isn't for the purpose of more oil production. It doesn't look like that is yeah. going to be an economic opportunity and get the the best economics and the financing and the uh, best yeah, credits that, from the government. that's sort of what I'm saying about definitions. It's, a, it's an aquifer versus a depleted hydrocarbon reservoir. But at the end of the day, as Tristan, you said, we're pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it away. And so who cares what you call it? That's correct. That's what really what we need to meet the commitments globally that Canada is making. Yeah. And actually sort of move forward on the problem, you're going to need to consider all options. And it doesn't look like right now that's being considered. Yeah. And by the way, these are not aquifers that would produce drinking water. I mean, they're... These are very deep and they're Three kilometers down. They're salty. They're not saline reservoirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's happening in the U.S.? Are they taking a different approach? Like what? Yeah, so they're ahead of us from several perspectives. So first, they have a very significant incentive program that actually has resulted in dramatic GHG reductions. So most people will know this as 45Q, but also they're taking both a hub and a distributed model approach. So they have various options at play, and they're looking at it more the outcomes than the specific process, which is really where you want to be in this situation. So the U.S. is is something you do want to consider. They also are similar to Alberta, more in a land-based environment than, say, the North Sea or what's happened in Norway. So you have to really make sure you're comparing an apple to an apple here. All right, so they're taking the hybrid approach that that you're suggesting of allowing some distributed and and some larger scale projects. Yep. And they're allowing EOR enhanced oil recovery. They certainly are, and there's incentives actually because they recognize that while you're moving forward on your EOR, you're actually reducing your GHG emission at the same time. Uh-huh. So the, the incentives are are in recognition of how much carbon is being captured. Uh-huh. But they are, correct me if I'm wrong, they are giving lesser incentives for EOR projects than pure storage. That is correct, yeah. yep. But still, the still reasonable amount of support for EOR. It, it's sort of a ratio thing, and you can look to it. I think they've got it pretty much in the ballpark of being you know, mm-hmm. fully correct. Yeah. So. Well, I think it makes sense because the enhanced oil recovery project has additional revenue from the oil production and therefore maybe doesn't need the same level of government support to move forward as a pure storage where they're entirely looking at the value of storing the carbon as, as their economic 
revenue. That's yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's using CCUS in a pure unsupported form within enhanced oil recovery is pretty tough. You can there's occasionally some players that can make it work. We have you know Whitecap Resources is pretty clever. For example, they've managed to move forward on that, but. The reality is some of the existing policies, the silver lining on them in Canada, whether that's clean fuel or others, is it does make those projects go. And what we really need is to make sure the tax credit is actually, uh, the federal tax credit is applied to EOR. So there is a 90-day comment process active right now. I guess we're a few days into it now, but but I guess that's something that you are working on and, and others are to try to change that. I think it was pretty clear in the in the budget that EOR wouldn't be supported. Do you think there's an opportunity to massage that or change that in the federal government's plan? You no, know, I, I think there is. The federal government is is focused on the policy outcome. They're very clear on that. They want to see the GHG emissions. So I think so long as the argument is put forward that, you know, and this is a very accurate argument, the reality is through undertaking enhanced oil recovery, you will see a decrease in GHG emissions that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. In other words, an incremental decrease. That actually does lead, you know, and support that inclusion of EOR in the federal government. So we are engaged. A number of our producers are engaged. We encourage others to also be engaged uh, with that process. When you say the U.S. is ahead... So just to be clear, I mean, they're not technologically ahead. I mean, the technology and the process has been around for a long time. So they're ahead from the perspective of getting the policies and I'll call it regulatory infrastructure to a stage where it's now commercially viable to do this. And there's an industry that's starting to emerge for carbon capture and sequestration which is positive because it creates economic activity on the ground in places where there's concerns about just transition and employment. And also, they are removing carbon from the atmosphere. And and so, we need to get it right on our side of the border to do the same. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So, there's nothing technologically different. I mean, the producers in Canada have outstanding technical ability to take, and actually our federal NRCAM minister talks about this. You really, if the federal government has set a policy towards net zero, they're not going to get there without the oil and gas companies participating in that. Those are the people that have the technical knowledge. Mm -hmm. They have very solid technical knowledge to do this in Canada. But it goes across all producers. This isn't just about one set of producers. Everybody should be participating in this because you'll get inclusion across the entire industry, but you'll also have a much more positive outcome. Well, I think, you know, obviously you speak for your 100 members and they have, first of all, the opportunity to sequester carbon should they choose to be able to participate in this distributed system with some of their processes and access to pore space. They also have an obligation to now reduce their carbon emissions. So that has to be done. But there's this whole other part of it, which is, say, let's just take aviation as an example, Mm -hmm. which there's, you have to use basically direct air capture, Yep, capture the emissions after they've been combusted out of a jet engine, and then take it and put it back on the ground. And in the United States, and what is it, Jackie, is it United Airlines? I think it is. Yeah, uh, United Airlines. Six months ago, already got into a deal, they're spending money, they're working with some of the producers 
and the the regulators and the geology, et cetera, everything there. And you know, this is like a cottage industry that's starting to sprout up. And we're going to need it here. I mean, if we're going to fulfill our net zero obligations, and we have a lot of industries, say agriculture and others that don't have the benefit of sitting on top of geology that is conducive they don't have the benefit of being able to easily mitigate their CO2 emissions quickly. And so in the near term, if they are to fulfill emission target obligations, this is the route that they're going to have to go. In the UFs, they've realized that, and it's creating this industry. And I think we've got to get it right to get it going here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what you need here is, I mean, to capitalize on the natural Alberta entrepreneurial spirit. That's, I mean, from businesses across Canada, but Alberta is obviously very well known in that. Yeah. So having these new businesses spring up is extremely positive. The U.S., that was what I was referring to, they've got that part very correct. We should be doing something similar well, in Alberta and then across Canada. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fear, uh, and I think it's already happening, is that Canadian companies that are emitters, that are not oil and gas, are going to go to the U.S. and pay U.S. companies to do carbon capture and sequestration, where we here in Canada already have some of the best reservoirs in the world for this. The best reservoirs, but also the best people. I mm-hmm. mean, this is this comes down to, this really actually comes down to a basic aspect of new, innovative, technologically advanced jobs. That's what you want to capitalize on. Mm-hmm. So you want to spread that outside of simply one way of doing this. And the U.S. has certainly got a, a positive approach there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not just about reducing our emissions, but it's really about bringing billions of dollars of investment into Western Canada and, and jobs and economic benefits. So for our, our last question, Tristan, I have a question for you, which is, what are the next steps for CCS policy development in Alberta? What would you like to see the next steps be, you know, now that you've seen this announcement of uh, in May? So first, I certainly commend the Alberta government for moving forward. They're trying to get a grip on this, and I know they are interested in engaging. So I think the next obvious step is a sort of a broad industry engagement with the the sort of technically competent people that can really sort out what are the concerns here and then what are the next steps. The second thing after that is I think you'll probably conclude that there are certainly benefits to a hub model. That's great in some situations, but in other situations, you will need a distributed model. And that's where the policy will have to evolve to. Well, we'll hope to see some uh, broader stakeholder engagement uh, come out of uh, mm-hmm. come out of the Alberta government, because I do think there's a, a big opportunity here. And like you said, Peter, I think we have to move fast. Yeah, we do. You know, there's, we do. There's competition. So with that, I think we'll wrap up the podcast. Thanks, Tristan, for coming on the podcast and getting us up to date on CCS policy in Alberta. Yeah, thanks, Tristan. Thanks for coming out and have a great summer. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Okay, and speaking of summer, I think we're going to take some holiday time Mm -hmm. too. Are we allowed? Yeah, (laughs) I'm taking it. So uh, we are not going to be recording as regularly this summer. And uh, we may have a few podcasts, but they certainly won't be every week. But we will be back full time in September. Yep. so watch for us or listen to us in September. And have a great summer, everyone. Yeah, have a great summer. And thanks to our listeners for following the podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.